0: Okay, we are facing the last book of the Bible, which most people look at as just absolutely mysterious, unknown, amazingly difficult, all of which are true and not true. Would God put in his book something that you couldn't understand? That's basically the question I always ask. So the scripture we're going to start off with is the very beginning of Revelation, first chapter, verses 1 through 4. So if you have your Bible, in whatever form it would be, let's uh, stand and hear the Word of God. Is near. And with that, we end the reading of God's Word, and you may be seated. Uh, Many Christians are familiar with Revelation if they've only heard about it. Some people shy away from it because they've heard it's so difficult. Others, like me, it's one of the first commentaries I ever read, was on the book of Revelation by a man named Hal Lindsey. I was a baby Christian, and I had not been inoculated with Reformed theology and and really good biblical thinking. Uh, And I read through it and I said, that's amazing. Actually, I like the book better because what it said about a few things that I needed to talk about more than his understanding of the book of Revelation. Um, But most people kind of shy away from it. I want to present a view of it to you today to help you say, this is one of the greatest books in the Bible. And that you ought to be thinking about it and reading it more and more. uh, And try to understand it that way. Let me put this in context. This is the final part of God's big picture. It is uh, the well this is about the 13th or 14th class that we've had on it but I would remind you of the theme that comes from God's big picture. That God's kingdom is God's people in God's place bringing God's blessing and rule. God's people in God's place bringing God's blessing and rule. We saw that in a creation where God created a place. He put his people in there. He ruled it. We saw it in the fall where the people fell and that it, um, his rule and blessing was broken. We saw it in Abraham where he reignited that through uh, one forefather. We saw it with Israel where he gathered a people together in the promised land, his people and his place bringing blessing and rule. And they were meant to bring blessing and rule to the whole world. Uh, it's one of the reasons they were in the place they were, at the center of the trade routes of the known world. I uh, saw it with the, apostles, the, the prophets and then with Jesus and the apostles. And now we enter into the final lesson that is talking about his big picture with the climax of history. But also, and I think this is key to understanding the book, that God is giving to us through John, a, in picture language what he's doing in the world today. What he did in the first century, what he does every century, what he's doing in the world today. Therefore, I disagreed with Hal Lindsay that put all this stuff 1,800 years after it was written and talked about the locusts were helicopters, the army helicopters that could blow up things, or all sorts of imaginary things that took place. At the same time, I r- realize we are entering into holy ground and we probably t- t- should take our shoes off because it is a view of the world as God sees the world through his church. Remember, God sees things through the bride of Christ and he operates through the bride of Christ. He doesn't operate all on his own. He does things through his bride. And The other part about holy ground is men. People who have their interpretations viciously defend their interpretations. I mean, you can be called a heretic if you don't believe the way they believe about Revelation. Uh, They can boot you out of their camp. They want nothing to do with you. And they think that you have just, you have forsaken the faith in a book that is uh, seen in many different ways. Probably not exclusively. If you look at the back of, the, of your outline, you you don't have an outline? They're back there. Well, I will look at the back of the outline for you. Um, if you look at the section that's note one, the schools of interpretation, where you deal with, a some deal with the book his. Uh, in, Historis- historically it's a linear order of visions that will tell you the history of the world and successive events all the way from the apostolic age to Christ's coming. There's a futuristic view that it ref- after chapters 4 to 22 it represents events far in the future from where John wrote and uh, it gives you an order of events that's going to take place. There's a futuristic dispensational that basically adds, because in as they understand it, you don't hear about the church after ch- chapter Four, one. The church has been raptured from the earth, and everything that happens from chapter four, one through 19 is something that's going to happen. And uh, the seven years period of tribulation and then Christ returns. And they have elaborate diagrams of how this takes place. I, I guess maybe part of it is and part of my reluctance is you have to get that elaborate for a diagram. I wonder if it's really true. This is made for e- for, to, to be easily understood. Uh, there's a preterist. That is that everything was fulfilled in Revelation. If you're a full preterist, you say it was fulfilled by 70 A.D. If you're a partial preterist, you say everything up through chapter 19 was fulfilled in 70 A.D. And then you have a jump to the final coming. Or you have the idealist, that it's a vision, pictures the conflict between the church and its adversaries. And it's between good and evil. Uh, If you want to fall in one of those camps, that will determine how you understand the book. Predominant view of understanding Revelation in our day and age is a futurist dispensational. Because dispensationalism is the predominant view of the return of Christ. That according to them in Ephesians, or uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, the church is raptured, taken away. To meet Christ in the clouds, seven-year period comes, or depending on your you know, on your view of dispensationalism, it happens in the middle of those seven years. It happens before. It happens whatever, and that revelation now talks about what happens and something that at least from the uh, viewpoint of John the writer happens at least nineteen. 2,000, 1,900, 2,000 years in the future. Now, part of my problem with that is I don't think that's how the Bible is written. And it wouldn't make sense to anybody else. And I'll, I'll keep coming back to this. So depending on how you do that. Now, there are also those who say, well, probably none of those are completely accurate and it's a combination of the two. So, in reform circles, the preterist view has been predominant that everything that happened in revelation happened before seventy a d with the destruction of the temple, and that was god's judgment on Israel for rejecting the Messiah and persecuting the church and Now the church goes out in the world, or they like it up seventy a d up through the end of or up through the middle of chapter nineteen, and then comes a look at the return of Christ. Uh, that's that's predominant. You know, if you think about it, that makes more sense for those who are living at that time. That it would speak to their time, as it would speak to our time. In that, so uh, all I want to do today is. Under that theme, God's people in God's place, bringing God's blessing and rule, the kingdom of God, to take a look and what I would hope to be a reasonable way of looking at this book and being able to understand what takes place. First of all, let's give an overview of the book, and that's from chapter chapter 1, verse 1 to 8. Chapter, verse 1, reminds us the book is apocalyptic literature. It says, the revelation. That word in the Greek is apocalyptus, which means an unveiling, an unfolding, an opening up. And that's what revelation is meant to do, any kind of revelation. Creation opens up the idea that there is a creator. And we can see if we're looking at it closely enough, his eternal powers, and his attributes. The scriptures are a revelation because from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, it unveils who God is. And you get a good picture of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who we are, what Christ has done for us, our salvation, and the way we are to live. Uh, But there is also a special type of of revelation or a special type of literature called apocalyptic literature. It normally comes in symbols, in drama, even in a poetic style, which makes it difficult to understand because most of us like plain forward speech. You know, some of us, some people do not understand sarcasm because they don't understand the tongue of the cheek, And they don't see the twinkle in the eye, or they don't catch the little upturn on the mouth, and they think they take it literally and they get offended. I was just kidding. It's sarcastic. Or they don't like sarcasm at all. And that's what symbolism, drama, poetic style does. It's written in informed imagery and imagination, and not to be taken what I call woodenly. Some would say not to be taken literally, which is a, a way of saying it, but we talk about the literal understanding is of, of the Scripture, and some say, well, if it's literal, you have to take it woodenly." So if God says he has a hand, God has a hand. There's a noted speaker in one camp of the church who says he knows exactly how big God is because the scripture says the span of his hand and a span is 8 inches. So if he's got a hand of 8 inches and you move it out to the rest of his body, he's about 6'2", six 6'3". Six <laughs> You're kidding me. <laughs> the scripture talks anthropomorphically. Human attributes applied to God. Uh, we know God is spirit, therefore he doesn't even have a hand. He cannot. And if you want to say Jesus had a span of eight inches, he was six foot two, they would have called him a Goliath. Because back then the average height was five six. He would have, he would have stood out in a crowd. He would have stood out in a crowd anyway, but that's a different reason. There are two Old Testament cousins, Daniel 7 to 12 and Zechariah, especially the first few chapters. Where, which are also apocalyptic literature. If you read the first at least seven chapters of Zechariah, you are faced with all these kind of visions that are weird, change, but behind them has, have Old Testament meanings and that can be opened up if you understand your Old Testament. The book stands as a word picture book, visuals and symbols expressed through words, um, I think, yeah, it's a supplic- supp- yeah, this is my thinking. If John had lived in our day and had been given the book of Revelation, you could have put it on an iPod. Or you could have put it on YouTube. And you'd get the visual of it. Well, he didn't. All he had was a, a stylus and a piece of paper. And so he had to write the symbols. He had to write the pictures. And so part of what you do when you read Revelation is you're looking, what does a picture show you? And some of it is really abstract art. But what does it show you? How does it come across? That somewhat makes it difficult to understand because some of us don't deal with abstracts and abstract art real well. I mean, if I'm looking at a pond, I want to look at a pond. I don't want to look at 40 colors put together saying, that's the pond. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Okay. But you you catch the picture of what that is. It's associated with extremes, overstatements, which cannot be taken woodenly, yet can be understood. Uh, It uses a lot of Old Testament imagery, but the extremes... It's almost like when you're talking with children. Sometimes you say something extreme. You say that 1,000 times! And the kid, if he's really a smart act, looks at you and says, have you Have you been counting how many times I said that? No. Well, you, it's an extreme. It's an exaggeration. And everyone takes it that way. Well, take some of these things as exaggerations. More than just taking it in a wooden way. And that's part of taking apocalyptic literature literally, is you take it in the style of literature that it is. We do that all the time in the Bible. We do not look at the Psalms and say, that's prose. It's poetry. It has certain styles, and you have to understand it." it. We don't look at history and say, "Hmm, there's a deeper meaning to that than just historical facts. That Reuben had 30,000 children in the Exodus. Obviously, that means something else. No, he had Reuben, 30,000 30, children, or men in the Exodus. Numbers are important, though it may not be taken literally, woodenly. Example, in Revelation 7, you'll talk about the 144,000. Jehovah's Witnesses took that to mean that there were only going to be 144,000 people saved, and their problem came about the turn of the century when they got to 144,001. What do you do now? Do you knock off some of them and say, You're not really saved? Or do you say, Well, it's only 144,000 at a time. So when one dies and one comes, you know, it balances out. Or you say there's only 144,000 true believers and the rest are kind of substandard. Let's see, if you take it woodenly, that's a problem you run into. If you take it the way it was meant, 12,000 for 12 tribes equals 144,000, 12 being the number of perfection. 12 to the 10th, 12 to the multiplied by a thousand means the perfection of perfection, then you look at it and say, well, that's the complete number of individuals. That's what he's trying to get across. Uh, And that's also with the number seven. Seven is a number of completion or perfection and should be seen that way. Chapters may not be chronological, but rather concentric, cyclical, or retelling a previous one, there is one group of people that take a look at the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, and, and or and those sections, and then they say one is the outer circle, the next one is the inner circle, third one is the inner inner circle, and now you got your bullseye. Okay, this one. Is intensified by this one. So it takes this one and it brings it, compacts it, and this one, the middle, does it even more. And that's how they interpret it. Well, that could be done. In fact, one of the first books that I really liked on Revelation did exactly that. Each section builds on the other section, but goes deeper into what that first section talked about or the previous section talked about. It's it's very interesting. The The book is filled with Old Testament references, symbols or events, some of which are hidden or oblique. If you do not know your Old Testament, do not try to understand Revelation because you'll miss part of what goes on. You know, I mentioned Hal Lindsey and how the locusts were uh, helicopter, army helicopters. Well, he, he missed it because he wanted to keep it in the future. He thought Christ would come soon. But when you take a look at locusts, the first thing you ought to think about is Joel. The locusts that came. Four different types of locusts who ate up everything that was there. And so you think of a destroying power may not actually be locust. could be something else, but it's to destroy. That's the image. You will see as you go through this happen again and again. it pops up. So you, you need to know your Old Testament with, with its teaching there. Um, that's the first part. It's, it's revelation. It's apocalyptic literature. It's meant to be understood through its symbols and its teaching. The second is the chief subject matter is Jesus Christ, and this is where I think people go wrong with this book, especially if you apply it to the future, and they say, this is what's going to happen at the future of the world. Now, John, in his introduction, makes it quite clear. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That of can be taken in one of two ways. It's a revelation that comes from Jesus Christ by God through an angel to his beloved disciple John to the seven churches. Or it is a revelation about Jesus Christ. And what the book is meant to do is to show you Jesus. And I see that fits in with the rest of the scripture. Because every book from Genesis through Jude is meant to show you Jesus. As uh, I think it was Spurgeon said, you ought to be able to see Jesus in every page of the Bible. That's what the book, that's what the Bible is. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, you see him as Messiah. You see him in shadowy forms. The New Testament, you see Jesus as a substance. In the Gospel, and in the the rest of the literature you see who he is and what he and they kind of define who that substance is as they define Jesus and how then you live with him well why don't we do that when we look at the book of revelation it's the same principle i think the book more than about the future or more about anything else it's a means of seeing jesus And really realizing him throughout his past pages, and you'll see that in a a couple minutes. It's primarily a letter to the church through the seven congregations that is, uh, which he which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. It was meant to be understood by these congregations, just like the rest of the Bible, especially the New Testament. Mark didn't write a gospel that said this is really strange and you'll never understand it but this is God's word to you. No, 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 no. come on. It was quite, you, you read it and you read it and you thought about it and you understood it. Even when Peter says the difficult things of Peter, of, of Paul that some people don't understand, 2 Peter 3 at least they understood it was from Paul and you could understand it. Difficult, take a lot of time, but you could understand it. The churches, the early churches, the seven churches especially mentioned in chapters two to three, would have had to be able to understand it. Why? Next line. Otherwise, the book would be nonsense to the first readers and would never have made it into the canon. I mean, to me, that's just reasonable. You don't put a book in that you have no idea what it's talking about or that it's meant to be for 2,000 years down the road. Who cares about 2,000 years down the road? We aren't even going to be around in 2,000. What is a book that talks about something 2,000 years in the, in, down the road have much to do with us today? This book has a lot to do with the church in the first century and therefore in every other century. Um, and the last part of that, it was used. It was to be used by the church for its edification and encouragement in its day, just like every other book of the Bible. They read it. You know, one of the common refrains as you read chapter two and three: "Let he who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Okay, it doesn't say let he who has an ears be befuddled by what the Spirit is trying to say. Now, he makes it very clear. You are to hear this. It's an encouragement. In fact, when you take a look at those seven churches, Jesus in every one, except for two of them, points out their, Everyone he points out their good side. Five out of the seven, he points out their bad side. And then he says to everyone, this then what you need to do in light of what I've pointed out. And let's try and encourage it. It's right there. Now, if you take that those seven ch- churches are seven church ages, then once you got past uh, Ephesus, it would mean nothing to the first readers. How do, how do I know when the next church age is going to come? I mean, some people have said in our own day and age, you know, you need a reformation every 500 years. Well, we had a reformation 500 years ago. By golly, let's have another reformation. <laughs> Somebody stand up and nail those thesis to the door. <laughs> now, nah, the church needs a reformation every year and every decade because we are so prone to forget what it's all about. Um, that's what this does. To those seven churches, this book gave a lot of encouragement. And to us, as we really understand it, it does the same to us. The book contains a short certainty. Look how it is put. The things that must soon take place. I looked up those words. Must means necessarily. Soon can only mean Soon, it doesn't mean two thousand years down the road. It doesn't mean in another age. It means soon. It's just as when Jesus was in the uh, was talking in the Olivet Discourse about the destruction of the temple, uh, Matthew or Mark thirteen, Matthew twenty-three, something in there. And what he says is. This generation will not pass away until these things happen. And I've seen people say, well, a generation. You mean race. Now the word doesn't mean race. It means this generation. 40 year period. You cannot change that word and make sense out of it. That's what it means. And so Jesus was saying, this is going to happen within the next 40 years. By golly. Everything he talked about happened with the destruction of the temple. And it's in that context of having the temple torn down. See, that's, again, that's just good interpretation to me. So when he says must, it is going to certainly occur. And therefore you have to be prepared. The book is getting people ready for what is happening. And it's going to happen soon. It's going to take place within the lifetime of the readers. Otherwise soon makes no sense. One does not need to wait over centuries or for some final push for victory. That implication is that we this is how we understand the phrase last days. Again, there are groups within the church as a whole. When you say last days, they automatically think about the second coming those are the last days we don't live in the last days those are in the last days and then you show them Acts 2 when Peter is preaching and he says we are now in the last days and that's a refrain that goes throughout the epistles this is the last days why? Old Testament was the first days this is the last days the old age, the new age the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. Better yet, the Old Covenant, the Better Covenant. Former Covenant, Better Covenant. And what the book is saying is that this book is applicable applicable between Christ's ascension and his return. At every age, you can read it and be encouraged by it and be helped by it. You don't have to wait for some time down the road. Um, and because of that, this book allows us to see in a limited degree as to how God is working in the world. There is a, there is a mystery to how God works. Deuteronomy 29, 29 talks about how God makes plain some things, but other things are mysteries. We can see what he's doing, but we may not see why. In our own lives, we can see that sometimes we go through very difficult times. And we wonder, why, God? Didn't you promise me prosperity and health and peace? Isn't my life supposed to be a rosy life after I came to Christ? And all you can say is, yes, God is good. He disciplines his children like a wise father to any child. But you don't know exactly why. He May be doing that was Job's problem. Lord, I haven't done anything wrong. What are you doing? And at the end, Lord says, I'm God, <laughs> you know, suck it up. <laughs> you know, where were you when I created this world? I'm, that's a little facetiousness, sarcasm there, but that's the idea. We don't always see it, but we do know the one who's behind it. Why is it? That in the Reformation, the Christian faith was so solid in Europe and North America. And now there are more Anglicans that go to church in Ethiopia than in the rest of the world. There are more people going to church in one country than all of the Christians in North America in Europe together. Whoa! I thought we were God's people. Uh, maybe not. Okay. There goes my mega hat right there. Um, <laughs> right then, you begin to see God has is working His plan out. We may not see what or why, but we do see what He's doing. I think that's the one of the main messages of mess of Revelation. God's working out his plan perfectly, guys. Don't sweat it. He's working out his plan. You may not see why, but he's working out his plan. And this is what he is consistently doing in every age of the church, no matter what. Also, the book was given to a beloved disciple who faithfully witnessed to his Lord. Verse 2. It says it was given to John. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. There's past tense in those verbs which tell me that this is not writing about uh, the word of God and the testimony which John is going to see but what John, how John operated and why he would be the proper recipient of this. That is... From the cross onward, John was the apostle who continually gave great testimony to Jesus. In fact, if you look down to uh, verse 10, uh, verse 10? No, verse uh, 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, that are in Jesus Christ was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos was a penal colony. It's a relatively small island, 46 miles from the nearest other piece of land, in the middle of the Aegean Sea. You, you know, you think Sing Sing in uh, San Francisco Bay is tough to get out of? Patmos was. They didn't even need guards. they just throw them on the island. They're not getting away. They probably had guards. But why is he there? Because of his witness and his testimony to Jesus Christ. The emperor had sent him there. And therefore, he had shown his reliability. And because of that, uh, he would be one familiar with the Savior Trusted with the daunting task of writing this last book of the Bible and even possibly Revelation could be a summary of the Bible as a whole and the teaching of the Bible as a whole. If you look in your Hebrew Bible I know you all carry around a Hebrew Bible, right? You look at the front because it starts in the back. They go from right to left and not left to right. You look at the back, the last book of your Hebrew Bible is 1st and 2nd Corinthians. What we call 1st 2nd Corinthians. Excuse me? Chronicles, excuse me. Did I say Corinthians? I'm an Old Testament, a New Testament guy. 1st First, First and 2nd Chronicles, thank you. That could have gone out wrong and I could have gotten vilified for it. Everything he says is wrong because he said that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. Don't laugh that people do that. Um, It's the last book because it's a review of the total history of Israel from a very rose-colored viewpoint. Mentions David, never says anything about him and Bathsheba and Uriah and getting called by Nathan. Uh, Nathan. Never says anything bad about anybody. I mean, this is the Pinnacle 21st century book. Don't say anything bad about anybody. But that's because it's trying to show how God has blessed his people throughout history. And even though they're going into exile, there will come a time, and the last part of the book is, and Cyrus released the people to go back to the land. That's a, if you read that, you've got a summary of that, of the Old Testament. If you read Revelation, I think you have a summary of the teachings of the whole Bible. Veiled, yes, but it's it's there. Um, And therefore, it's very worthwhile looking at. And that also means that this book is to be aligned with the other books of the Bible. It's meant to be read in light of the themes of the first 65 books Not in and of itself. It seems to me as if some people like to go the first 65 and then all of a sudden take Revelation out all by itself. And to me, they come up with fanciful uh, interpretations because they don't put it in line with the rest of the book. Remember, this is one book with 66 books and they all fit together because they are inspired, breathed out by God. They have his authority, but they have his unity as well. The book is filled with blessings to those who read it and keep it. Verse 3, first is seven blessings, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Probably it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy because they didn't have a printing press. And so the way in which a congregation heard a letter from anybody, it was read in their their midst. They may have copied it, they may have gotten a copy of it, but they didn't do a lot of writing and some of the poor people did not have pen and paper to do that. So you read it. The one who reads it has a blessing, and those who hear and keep what is written in it have a blessing, which it's an Old Testament uh, teaching. It says, listen to God. It doesn't mean just hear with your ears. It means obey what you hear. And that's all that is being told. Why? For the time is, There's that sticky little word. Near, it's soon, it's, a, it's upon you, it's right before you. Again, in twice in four, four verses, the uh, author has told us, this book is for the age in which it was first written. And then it extrapolates to the others. What is written in here is something, the whole 22 chapters are something for the whole church and all the seven churches. book also is one of worship, 4 through 8. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth, in Him, who loves us, to Him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes on the earth, of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. Those are powerful words of worship. Uh, And it not only gives us the doctrine of the Trinity, of the God who is and was and was to come, also Jesus Christ, but also the seven spirits. And again, Seven is not literally seven different spirits. It's the idea, this is the perfect spirit. Who's the perfect spirit? Only one, Holy Spirit. You have a doctrine of the Trinity. It talks about being freed, made a kingdom, and it praises uh, the Lord by talking about his glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And he is coming in the clouds. Again, an Old Testament reference. When did God come to his people? Or how? He came in the clouds. (laughs) There they are out in in the wilderness, being chased by the Egyptians after they had fled Egypt. And God comes before them during the day as a great cloud. And he puts himself between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And when it turns night, he becomes a huge fire. A cloud that protects them not only from the Egyptians, but the hot sun. A fire that gives them heat in the cold dark, uh, desert. And wherever that cloud and fire went, the people were meant to follow. It's that kind of image that Jesus, when he talks about, you will see the Son of Man come in the clouds of glory. and The sun will take and go right off to the second coming. Ah, oh, yes, has to be second coming. Has to be that. Where he's simply using an Old Testament image, you'll see the presence of God in your midst. You'll recognize him. Again, see why the Old Test—you got to know your Old Testament to understand. I think to understand this correctly. Uh, Then you have the book's overall call. It's to obey what it says as we exercise faith and hope, being a call to. And these are some of the calls. Discipleship through following the Lamb. Bearing witness in strife and suffering. Resistant to evil. Committed to Christ despite the situation. Loyal to the King above all. And convinced about the truth. In short, this is how we are called to worship God. Again, remember, worship is not something you do on Sunday morning. Worship is all of life. And that's what I think this book is saying. This is how you worship God in the good times and the bad. Many of the scenes that you'll see in Revelation are what? Horrific scenes. Really bad times. And reminding the people that some of their fellow Christians are martyrs. They were killed for the faith. It's like in Nigeria, where the Muslims have killed hundreds of Christians simply for being Christians. You know, The press gets all excited about when a few Muslims are killed by some deranged person in what was New Zealand. Never reported hundreds of Christians being killed by Muslims. But you see, we live in a country where we have the privilege, maybe not privilege, but we have the privilege of not being attacked for our faith in that way. We have other ways we're attacked. You can't talk on a college campus about Christ, you can't talk, and even some things that the church wants to do are denied because it's the church, and that's part of our suffering that takes place. There may come a time, and a time in which, where we have enjoyed popularity, we no longer will enjoy it. And we will be persecuted like the Nigerians and others. And people bewail that. But ladies and gentlemen, we were born, reborn for that. Those who are in Christ will suffer. And if we haven't suffered, we've got to think to ourselves, man, am I reborn in Christ? Now Not that it goes on all the time, but that it does happen. And this book is meant, especially throughout the ages, to remind us whatever you suffer for Christ is worth it above the suffering. How does Paul put it? Such a light and momentary affliction. How getting 39 lashes on your back is a light and momentary momentary affliction? I have no idea. (laughs) Except in the broader picture. Paul went through that because that's how he shared the gospel. Think about it. You went on a right state and all of a sudden they picked you up, threw you against the, one of the poles and did 39 lashes on your back simply for being a Christian. And we go, hallelujah! You know, like Paul in the Philippian jail, praying and praising God at midnight when his back and his legs had to be killing him from what he went through. But he knew that might light in momentary affliction. And this is how, and this gives you a perspective of what happens when you go through those times of suffering for Christ. The other thing I would remind you that having a hangnail is not suffering for Christ. Having cancer is not necessarily suffering for Christ. Losing a loved one is not necessarily suffering for it. It's something that every human being goes through. And that doesn't make it suffering for Christ. What makes it suffering for Christ is because you're doing it because you represent Christ. Yeah, my daughter looked at me cross-eyed. I've been suffering for Christ. (laughs) No. Your daughter's a teenager. Teenagers always look at their parents cross-eyed because they have no idea what it's like to be a parent or what it's like to grow up. You have just enjoyed parenthood. So that's part of what you're looking at when you look at the book. Three main images, and I took this from a, a, a book whose title was The Throne, The Lamb, and the dragon. Well, that was a real original putting that on this paper. The the idea is the throne of God. Think think about this. You get done with the congregations, and the first thing you see is the throne of God. And the response of the elder and the angels to that is that in the uh, 11th verse worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created it's not only that he created all of what we see but God also creates everything that takes place by his will they exist why because ultimately they're meant to give him glory then you have the Lamb, and Chapter Five especially, and He is revered for by angels and elders. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Scroll is the idea of history being written. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. There's a picture of what Christ is doing. And it is mysterious only because we wonder how it's taking place. But it's also real. That from every tribe and language and people and nation. Uh, Nation not meaning the way we use nation, but groups of people. Um, every one of them, he's bringing people of his own. And he's at work doing it. You know, again, we get discouraged because we see the darkness all around us, especially in our own culture that used to be exemplary light before God. And then I, uh, I get discouraged. And then I remember the phrase of the Reformation, from darkness, Light. The darker it gets, the more God's light shines. And the darker a society gets, the more the light of Christ is a beam and a beacon that draws people to himself. So when you suffer from Christ, that's the darkness that brings light. Well, I went from teaching to preaching, sorry about that. Let me pause for a minute to get a drink of water and if you have any questions or comments or you can get up and stretch and stop going to sleep.